everyone to HR Tech Weekly. This is, well, it's our 200th show, but it, but this is, we're going to take a little different format this week. Joining me is John Sumser, who is the editor and chief of HR Examiner. And we're really excited to have a little bit of time here during the holiday weeks to, to have a conversation about John and John's background. But before we get started, we're going to say thank you to Benefit Ed who is our sponsor for the HR Tech Weekly this week and who has graciously offered to um, help sponsor the show. And we're just really excited about that. So John, normally HR Tech Weekly, we talk about all the things that are happening in the HR tech market for that week, what things have been invested in, where the market is going, what's happened from uh, industry news and information for the week. But this week, we decided it would be a good idea maybe to do a quick interview with you because you have interviewed how many people in your career now? Because you have done not only the HR Take Weekly radio show every week, but you also do the HR executive conversations interviews. How many have you interviewed now? Do you know? Oh, I think on the radio shows, it's about 440. And before the radio shows started, I did a project called the Top 100 Influencers. It was the first of those sorts of things. And there, if you go dig back in the HR Examiner archives, there are, I think, 89 profiles of people who were the key influencers about a decade ago. So you have you have been you have probably interviewed everybody in the major HR tech market for at least the last maybe 10 years now, then 15 years you going know, on? You- it's a really big marketplace, and there are all sorts of people I haven't had a chance to talk to yet. Uh, it's so it's more to do. You it's say. really <laughs> interesting. There's lots more to do. <laughs> well, today we're going to interview you. We are going to give the audience an opportunity to learn a little bit more about John Sumster because I don't know that many people know about the way you got into HR technology and the, your background and how that maybe influences the way you think about things. I met you, boy, it was at least 10 years ago almost, at an analyst event, and we were stuck on a boat together, I think is how that happened, wasn't it? We were stuck on a boat talking about HR technology and the research that I was working on at the time. And I was fascinated by the kind of questions that you asked. And I don't think everybody realizes how interesting your thinking is. And I thought maybe that's what we'd get into today a little bit about how well, you... Well, so, so the way I remember that is we <laughs> went to we went to, to uh, this conference to deliver talks and your talk was about maturity models and my talk was about why Stacy's wrong. Yes, there was that. <laughs> but, but we didn't and really... Then, to... And then we got then trapped we on a boat together. Then we got trapped on a boat together. Yes, <laughs> that's a very good explanation of it. I didn't want to get into that part because yes, there's always this bit of conflict around <laughs> who's right, who's wrong. But no, honestly, it was a great conversation we had on that on that boat because you were explaining to me why you thought the things that I was doing research on wasn't the way the world worked. And I was explaining why I thought it was at that point in time. And it was the most fascinating conversation I've ever had in my life. And ever since then, we've had the opportunity to keep touching base. And we got to know each other a little bit more. And then we started doing the HR Tech Weekly radio show a over 200 shows ago, almost over two and a half years ago. and Four, four, four years ago. Four years ago? Oh, my goodness. See, the time, it's right, because we got so much uh, time that passes. But over past four years, we have been talking like this every week, and most people don't get the chance to do that with you. So I thought it would be a good idea maybe to, to, to dive a little bit into your background. So Great. let's start with a little bit about what you were like as a kid. I think a lot of people don't realize how important 
sort of when you grow up, all the things that happen to you, how that might influence the way you think about the world. But you were an army brat when you were a kid, right? You traveled around quite a bit. Navy brat. I, I traveled a great deal when I was young, and I continued to do that when I when I went to work. And so this, we recently moved into a house in a town called Healdsburg, and it was the 27th move of my life, which gives me an average of slightly over two years per living place, which is the Navy tour of duty. And so that was a big shaping factor for me. The other thing that shaped me is I loved to read. There was a little library in our town, and one summer I read every book that was in it. And I particularly liked uh, science fiction that was sort of engineering-oriented. The big boom in science fiction when I was growing up were stories of sending rocket ships to outer space and doing interesting thing with engineering and physics, and I just ate that stuff up. And so that was that was the beginning. And I'm imagining you as a little kid, right, going into the into the bookstore and sort of saying, or into the library and saying, I'd like the next book. And you're finally the librarian going, you've read every book in the place, right? At this point. <laughs> it, was, it was a little library. It was probably, it was probably only three or 400 books. And I just stayed there that summer. I just wow. stayed there and plowed through them all. Yeah. That, you know, that voracious reading is a, is a, is a, is a really interesting thing. I think, you know, people either really love to read a lot or sometimes, you know, it's a little bit harder for them, but Voracious meaning is is a is an essence a a curiosity about the world. What would have what would from your perspective been your first real job when you were a kid? Because every, everybody's had that first job, paper job or something oh, like God. that. I started so so my family was broke. My family was really broke, and I really wanted blue jeans. And the only way to get blue jeans was by having a job. And so when I was when I was nine, I sold magazine subscriptions door to door to make money. And then the big break happened. And when I was about nine and a half, I got my first donut route and I sold donuts door to door. Donut man would come, you'd get, you know, 30 dozen donuts, and then you'd go knocking on doors to see who'd buy the donuts. It's great, yes. great <laughs> training, great training. Well, I was just going to ask, what do you think from those early jobs you do? What, what do you think that still sticks with you as you think about HR technology, your work in artificial intelligence? Is there anything that, you know, you go back to those early jobs you've had that just sort of carry through all the way through? Well, one thing that carries all the way through is that being scared isn't a good enough reason not to do something. And so, and so, so it took a long time to not be scared every time I walked up to a brand new door to sell somebody a half dozen donuts and knowing what to say when there's nothing to say because because people don't really respond to you want to buy some donuts <laughs> you, you know they, they tend to respond to some longer more engaging story and so I learned how to connect that's a great that's, yeah connections and and the the fear factor that everyone goes through when they first get started and in any kind of role, all things that are that are interesting and, and you can sort of transcend into anything that we're doing. The other thing you and I have talked a lot about is your experience as an engineer. So when you got done with school, was that sort of your first sort of primary job was going into engineering or was that second or, or third? I, I well, well, there's a, there's, a, there's a little hop there that's kind of interesting. I had an esoteric liberal arts degree and it was 1979. 
and the recession was bad, and there was no work for engineers, let alone somebody who who wasn't. So my first first real gig was as a door-to-door Santa Claus. And the deal was Polaroid invented this new product where you could take a picture and take a movie. And after you took the movie, you dumped the junk in some liquid and out came an eight millimeter film. And if you bought one of these things, which costs, I don't know, $1,500 in 1979 dollars, Santa would come to your house for a four hour party. And so there were a bunch of us Santa Clauses sitting around in this office waiting for the phone to ring. And the problem was that Polaroid only sold three systems nationally. <laughs> and so so it wasn't a really great job, but it got me um, th- through one thing or another to talk to a guy who um, hired me as a technical writer. And so I was the lowliest member of a big engineering team and worked my way from the very bottom of a 10,000-person engineering organization to the very top of it in the course of 10 or 12 years. And that's where I really fell in love with engineering and became a good engineer. Yeah. And I think, you know, I'm I'm just imagining you being the Santa Claus that comes to, to the house for four hours. And I think that's a fabulous story. Of course, you, we all may fit that a little bit better when we're older. I'm thinking of a 24 or so year old you going to the house trying to be Santa Claus for the, for the household. That would have been actually good fun, I think. <laughs> what uh, about, it might have been. Yeah, it might have been. You never knew. You never got to be Santa, right? <laughs> nope. Just, yeah. I just got to wear the costume and sit in the room. <laughs> but Polaroid learned a lesson, and you already had your sales chops. So so I, I think it probably worked out for everyone. In the engineering space, you, know, you did a lot, as you said, from the beginning to the end. Was there any particular manager who really stuck out? Any other person who really made a big difference for you when you were going through? Oh, you, your... you know what? I have had such... It's funny. I, I haven't had a boss in a very, very long time. But as I was as I was developing, I had a series of just fantastic bosses. One, one guy, you know, the, the, um, this, is, this is a recruiting story. So, so the guy who wanted to hire me was the big boss in this department. And my good friend, Fran, reported to him. And so Bob, the big boss, said to Fran, hire John. And Fran said, he's not qualified. I'm not hiring him. And uh, and, and Bob said, oh, yes, you are. (laughs) And so, so eventually, over Fran's strong objections, I got hired. And I was not qualified. I was absolutely not qualified for the job on paper. But I was perfectly qualified for the job in execution, right? And that's what that's what Bob was able to see, and that's what Fran learned. And so, so I'm still great friends with Fran to this day. And that was, geez, forty years ago. That was forty years ago, and and we learned so much together. And he came to appreciate the fact that I was insanely curious about everything. And so that's that's what. What propelled me as an engineer is I was insanely curious about everything. So, so I started with the technical writing, but ended up becoming a research and development project manager, doing things like we built the first ever interactive video disc, which was three feet in diameter and held a half hour's worth of hyperlinked instruction. 
um, in the early 80s. It was the first sort of mechanical version of a page markup language in practice. And, and if, you, if, if that sounds like gobbledygook to you, page markup language, PGML, was the precursor to HTML by about a decade. Yeah, no, those, uh, those interactive disks, those were hot things back in the day. I remember I, I was so excited. My first university class where they had a disk like that, it was in biology. And he was able to click on the pictures and show things and, and hyperlink into things. And we were like, this is so cool. But that was that was in our little town of Ohio. So so to be working on some of the first ones probably was pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. And that was just the beginning. I, I, I worked on a project that was a billion dollar deal in NATO where the what happens when you do a contract with NATO for defense related stuff is every company who every country who participates in the deal gets the same money back that they put in and so the the contracts are insanely difficult to organize and and i had a really interesting year organizing stuff like that so in your in your rules in engineering although you had to follow a lot of rules you broke the rules a lot too because you got jobs when most people wouldn't have from the resume area and you got into doing things that were brand new in their market it sounds like but a lot of the way people think about you is that you are sort of sort of the you are the rule breaker you're the one out here on the research side basically getting things a little more uh, reeled up figuring out how things are done asking questions that a lot of people oftentimes are uncomfortable answering how did you fit into the engineering world when you oftentimes i think you know, look for ways to do things differently. And engineering is all about doing things a little bit the same, I think. Or am I misreading what engineering is all about? Well, well, so you're partly right, but I did a couple of things. One thing I did was I got deeply involved in Japanese qual statistical quality control methods. And, and it was, you know, this is the early 80s, quality circles was one of the things. And, and that was making it better. And then the other thing was they gave me every job that nobody nobody else wanted. <laughs> right? So instead of going instead of going up the organization by heading down the center, I went up the organization by heading up the side doing the doing the projects that nobody wanted. <laughs> that is great. Great. I think that is something that every new employee should probably take a look at because there's a lot of different ways to go up. It doesn't always have to be right up the center. It's a fabulous way to look at it. Yeah, up, it's crowded going up the center. <laughs> it's really crowded going up the center. If you go, you, you might get lonely going up the side, but it's not going to be a heavily competed trajectory. And right? it'll and, be a, and, a lot more interesting world when you get up there, I think, right? <laughs> yeah, so, so I had... I just had all so I taught the graduating class of the Taiwan Chengsheng Institute, which is their naval academy, the ins and outs of frigate design for a year. And and on day one, I didn't I'd never seen a frigate. I didn't know what a frigate was. And 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 I, what I learned is that in order to teach a great class, you must be at least one hour ahead of the class at the end of the day. But you don't have to be any further ahead than that. Yeah. And, and that's that's a lesson that great trainers learn. But that was every day for a year. It was go home, study up, figure out how to make the next day work, and get it done over the course of a year. And it was a, a, an extraordinary experience. So, you, but nobody wanted the job, right? Exactly. <laughs> nobody, no, wanted the job. nobody wanted the job. I was just going to say that's 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 the the most interesting 
thing about all of that. I was going to say, you know, learning how to be a trainer, learning how to be a writer, learning how to do engineering, learning how to deal with the challenges of organizations that aren't quite doing things the way you expect them to be done. All of those things in one career is is big enough, right? Did you know 86% of career seekers would commit five years to an employer offering a student loan repayment benefit program? Even more amazing, only 4% of employers offer one. Benefit Ed makes it easy to introduce this in-demand benefit any time of year. Simple administration for you. Simple sign-up for employees. You can help them pay down student loans or save for college. Compete for the best and build your dream team. Learn more at youbenefited.com slash hrtech. That's y-o-u-benefited.com slash hrtech. You also then started running your own company after that, right? So you started in the internet business with your own company, uh, and then you also went into sort of recruiting field as well. And that's how you got into the influencer space, correct? So I had this background in, in writing and publishing from the engineering days, and I came to California to run something called the Point Foundation, which owned uh, the well and the whole earth catalog. And so so it was my actual dream job when I was a 14-year-old kid. And I got it when I was about 40. And it didn't work out very well. So 18 months later, I was trying to figure out how to feed my family. And I didn't really have any choice but to start a company. And it was it was not something I ever imagined doing before, and it was the smartest thing I ever did. So the, the original company looked at the use of the internet for various kinds of marketing, one of which was job marketing, and very quickly became focused on the comings and goings statistics and personalities of people in the online recruiting business. Which was really nascent. Yeah, that was that was early oh. days, right? You were there at the beginning of of monster.com and the and the whole crew, correct, right? Early days. So, I never know how to say this exactly very well, but but it it seems to me that there's no such thing as an industry till there's somebody who observes the industry. Mm-hmm. And I was I was very clearly the first observer of the industry. Yeah. And so I grew up with it. It grew up with me. And, and it was a very, very interesting time that maybe a decade ago, we're going into the 10th year on the HR examiner. And so a decade ago, I enlarged my um, field of view to all of HR technology from recruiting technology. So, so let's talk a little bit about HR examiner. So HR examiner is, it's a published magazine. Every week you put out a series of articles, radio shows, and topics that most magazines in the space don't cover. And it's also a great venue for you to have a lot of conversations with people as well. What was the impetus for doing HR Examiner? What was the the space you were trying to reach when you started doing HR Examiner? It was kind of like I didn't know how to do anything else. I wish it was infinitely more clever than that, but but I think I think if if people get anything out of this conversation, what you should take away is it doesn't take being super smart to pull off some of this stuff. It takes being boxed in or desperate or lazy or incapable of thinking of anything else, which is what this is the story with the founding of HR Examiner. And 
you know, I, I, at, at the very beginning of HR Examiner, what I did was try to interview everybody who mattered and got a pretty long way with that. And that became the foundation for our editorial advisory board. The, the strength of the HR Examiner is the team of about 25 people who write for the editorial advisory board, and they write on subjects at the edge of HR. And it, and it is thoughtful, it's well executed, and the people who are regular readers are the kinds of people you want running your um, HR transformation projects, basically, because they've got big ideas and big imaginations about HR. Yeah. I'll give you another thing. I think HR Examiner, I, I get what you mean by sort of boxing, because sometimes you know, necessity is the mother of invention, without a doubt, when it comes to, to things that are maybe bigger than we realize they are. But I think the insatiable curiosity is definitely a big part of that. Your desire to always ask why? Why are we doing this? That has been the biggest driver for me in our conversations. Even when I think something is common sense, everyone should understand why we're doing it. You ask why, and I think you make us think a little differently a lot of times. Maybe talk a little bit about, you know, you got into artificial intelligence in the last few years and the work that you're doing at that. What kind of questions are you asking now that you think are different from what the rest of the market is asking in the, in the space of artificial intelligence? I think there are a couple of things. One is uh, I'm asking pretty extensive questions about ethics. And I think ethics is a very, very big topic because what we're talking about with, with intelligent tools is bringing automated workers into the fold in the workforce. And we need to understand how to relate to them and how to absorb what it is they have to offer us. And, and what they have to offer us is never the truth. What they have to offer us is an opinion. And so the challenge, the ethical challenge is understanding what that opinion means and what the limits of the machine that gives us the opinion are. So that's, that's a question that, that sometimes, <sighs> Sometimes it feels like I'm drowning in the answer to that because the engineer's approach to um, intelligent tools is to slice things up in as many pieces as possible, count those pieces, and then present the counted pieces as a representation of the whole, right? And so as soon as you start slicing stuff up, it dies, right? And so, so there's always something vital missing from a from a machine's model and the question is how important is that today because the value of the machine's model varies over time just like worker performance varies over time and you don't really want to take a strategic answer from me if i'm grumpy because you might come back a day when i'm feeling a little bit better and get a smarter answer and and machines have those same equivalents of moments of grumpiness and moments of optimism. But we haven't been trained to look for that. So it's a trouble spot coming in usage, I think. Well, that's, you know, and I think it's fascinating to think about the idea of the technology being something that, you know, we're so used to saying that technology is always the same. That's the value of technology, right? But I think what you're saying is that in this new world we're creating, it won't be. And that's going to be the most difficult part. If it's more human, humans are more complex to deal with. Right. Well, and what you're saying is right, but there's like everything in this space has its own contradiction baked in. So what a machine learning algorithm does is it tries to find 
all of the range of the answer and settle in on all the range of the answer. But what happens is as soon as the algorithm has learned everything, it stops the machine equivalent of being curious or the productivity equivalent of increasing productivity and just creates a flat thing. And you know, jobs don't stay flat and answers in organizations don't stay flat. So what you have to do every time it flattens out is figure out how to get it working again, right? And so on a level, managing digital employees means noticing when they've fallen asleep and waking them back up so they can go do their damn job. (laughs) Sometimes very true, yes. <laughs> right. Yep. So this this way of thinking that you have about sort of the, the space in general is to look for the areas where I think there's gaps in understanding. And that's that's generally a lot of the things that I've seen you do is you've taken the areas where everyone kind of thinks they understand up to a certain point and you've said, No, there's some there's some gaps here. From your perspective, I mean, what do you think is going to be the next big area you're going to find gaps in? Is it going to stay in artificial intelligence or is it going to brought out in other areas, do you think? Well, it's pretty clear. So so I, I've never liked calling this stuff artificial intelligence. It's, you know, buzzwords have a three or four year life cycle. And, and this thing about the project to make machines better helpers is a hundred year project. And by calling this early stuff artificial intelligence, you sort of diminish the product that's going to be available 100 years from now, right? This isn't artificial intelligence. This is good math. And, and, and so, so we're going to see some extraordinary things happen with good math. Just because, just because it isn't artificial intelligence doesn't mean it isn't powerful and useful. It just isn't artificial intelligence. And, and really, I have not seen, I've seen it all in this space. I've talked to 200 vendors and looked at their stuff. I haven't seen any artificial intelligence yet. And, but, but I have seen some amazing amazing tools. And so so by naming them incorrectly, we run the risk of setting customers' expectations too high because it isn't intelligent and sometimes it does stupid stuff, right? And so, so it's artificial, all right, but it may not be all that intelligent. <laughs> and, and that's what we're dealing with, right? Um, meanwhile, Salespeople are out peddling artificial intelligence to people who don't understand what they're talking about, and the market is moving as a result of that. And so I I, I think we're going to see a time where people are extremely frustrated with the results that they're getting from the stuff they've been sold. And do you think that there's one or two questions that everyone should be asking about this space right now uh, as we sort of serve as a wrap up to our conversation? What's what's the one or two thing you you think is a question that all the buyers should be asking that they're not? Well, the first question a buyer should ask is, do we have our own internal data in proper order? There's a data governance question. In order for in order for these tools to work effectively in your company, all of the fields in all of the databases have to be named the same things so that you can use the data from all of the databases to arrive at interesting conclusions. If they're named different things, the data is not very useful. And, and what the last decade of enterprise software has done is, is it's helped create, yeah, I've, seen, I've seen recruiting departments with hundreds and hundreds of individualized workflows because they could. Yeah. And in order to get intelligence out of all of that data, you have to collapse those workflows into something that's more standard. 
right? So, so is your data properly organized is a really big and painful question because each one of those individualized workflows is somebody's little baby. Yep, exactly. <laughs> and, it's a hard, and, it's a hard and, work. And, and not all the little babies are going to survive this yeah. particular round. And so you got you to gotta go through that to be ready. And then the second thing is, what are we really trying to do is, is so important, and it takes a lot of work to get to the place where you have an idea of what you want to do with intelligent tools in your business. And that's a hard question that doesn't have tangible results. It just has planning as the result. And maybe the third question, and this is, this is one of those ones where people push back a lot, is, is, is there really such a thing as ROI in HR? And I would suggest that there isn't, that, that the ROI associated with intelligent tools is akin to the ROI associated with putting a replacement tire on a car in the Indianapolis 500. The ROI is you get to finish the race. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) The the ROI is that there's no better. It's just you have to do it, right? That's it. That's right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And so, and so, those are the three things that I would leave you. Wow. Well, John, hopefully, those who've had the opportunity to listen today not only learned a little bit more about you and and the way you have sort of created sort of or or developed your own thinking around all of this, but also hopefully they've got an opportunity to think a little bit more about the questions they should be asking. Because I think that's my, that's the thing I take away most from our relationship is you always make me ask better questions. And I think anybody who can do that for someone is, is one of the best coaches and mentors in the industry. So thank you, John, for taking the time to talk with me and share some of your background and your history with us. And thank everyone for joining us for HR Tech Weekly this week. We've had a great time getting a chance to share a little bit more about ourselves uh, along the way and hope that everyone will continue to join us. I think next week, everyone will get, uh, we'll do a, a 200th anniversary or 200th show session. So everyone will get a chance to hear us talk a little bit more about things that are going on in the market there. And John, any last minute comments for everyone as we sort of wrap up today and things you would like? No, this to- was a great yeah. conversation. Thanks, thanks for doing this. This is not something that I would think of. I appreciate you doing it. And I just want to shout out to you, benefited.com slash HR tech and say, thanks. We really appreciate you supporting us. Thank you. And thanks everyone for joining us. And this has been HR Tech Weekly, One Step Closer. And we are looking forward to seeing you guys all next week. Thanks everyone. Bye. All right. Bye-bye now.